This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's take an opportunity to just look at a, in a way, a hypothetical or something that you can see coming. What does it mean if we have a portion of the population who are not vaccinated? And maybe it's also time for a little bit of a refresher course on being vaccinated. There are stickers that you get when you get vaccinated. And those stickers almost make people want to feel, hey, sticker means I'm good. That's not really the way that vaccines work. It goes into your arm. It's it's not all of a sudden instant. It's not like, hey, I'm going to put on this hat and my head will be warm as soon as it reaches my head. Mm, not quite. So we had an opportunity just a little while ago to talk with Dr. Don Bowdish, professor and university scholar, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University. And we touched on all of these things and more, kicking things off by asking Dr. Bowdish, through all of this pandemic, how's she doing? Oh, it's a busy and hectic time to be in COVID research, I have to admit. I'll be uh, much relieved uh, when this uh, stay-at-home order can be lifted because it's been a huge strain on all the researchers and the research team doing this research. But I'm grateful to be here and to be able to talk to you about the importance of vaccination because that is the key to getting us out of this next round of lockdown. Well, along with the Premier declaring the state of emergency, issuing stay-at-home orders, He also this week has talked about numbers of people who in the 80 plus category, in the 75 plus, 70 plus, have not booked vaccinations and have been eligible to do so. And that leads you to think, okay, maybe some just haven't done it. Who knows? We don't feel as busy as maybe we we used to be, but uh, maybe they have things going on. Or maybe they're choosing not to do it. If we have a significant part of our population that chooses, and we've seen numbers on vaccine hesitancy, we have a significant number that chooses not to do it. What could that mean? Mm -hmm. It will have big impacts for sure. So one of the things that we are going to see in the context of these vaccines is that they actually don't give 100% protection to all the people all the time. Despite the fact that the vaccines we have in Canada are surpassed expectations, they did way better than we were hoping uh, for them to do. There are groups of people, people in long-term care, the oldest old, people who are undergoing cancer immunotherapy, uh, people who have chronic health conditions, who in any vaccine will not be fully protected. And that's because a vaccine harnesses your natural immune response And anything that suppresses your immune response, including age, uh, can reduce the efficacy of these vaccines. So as a consequence, even if these people are vaccinated, they still need the help of all of us who are young and who are healthy. And if we get vaccinated, we stop those chains of transmission and we protect our elders, the people we care about, those undergoing cancer treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we worry about is uh, two things. We worry that if the general population doesn't take up vaccines at the rate they should, then all we will, we will see more outbreaks. We will see outbreaks at cancer centers. We will see outbreaks in long-term care facilities. We will see outbreaks in communities that have a lot of older uh, individuals or, or immunocompromised individuals, indigenous communities, et cetera, et cetera. But we also uh, worry that vaccine distribution has not been totally equitable. 
So, you know, as a university researcher who works with COVID, it was really easy for me to book my vaccine. And yet, you know, I know older adults who think that their doctor's going to call them, you know, they struggle with it using the internet system. Let's be clear, that was not, you know, if you've ever seen the online vaccine booking, you can understand why some people have struggled with it. There's been not a lot of clarity about what counts as a pre-existing condition. And in any public health measure, you bring the health to the people. You don't ask the people to come to you. I know people's in, people who work in long-term care who want to get vaccinated, but it's a three-hour bus ride to get to their nearest vaccination center. And so if they're not being paid for that, what does that look like? How do they get there? And so you need to be bringing the vaccines to the people, especially in underserved communities. We need to make sure that we have lots of languages easily represented for people who English, especially older people who English isn't their first language. And so there's so much we could be doing to get the vaccines to the right people at the right time. And that's been a huge, uh, that's been the reason we are in a lockdown for the third time. We're talking with Dr. Don Bowdish, who is a professor and university scholar, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity, and part of McMaster University. Dr. Bowdish, you've outlined a lot of things right there. Is it too late to add those in? Because we hear the province will always tout the vaccine rollout as being fantastic. They're the government. That's what they're going to do. But if there are little tweaks that could be done, some of the things that you've suggested is it still okay? Do we, do we still have time to do things like that? We do, but we need to work quickly. We need to have, uh, like I said, getting vaccines to the right people is really important. The, these variants are spread uh, and through essential workers, essentially, is what we're seeing now. We're seeing that older adults have either been vaccinated, which is incredible, or they're really committed to social distancing, which has also been really incredible. But it's all those people who uh, you know, have to work, all our grocery store workers, we applauded and we clapped hands for, well, let's get them the vaccines that they need to be safe. If there's an, a, a factory or a workplace where there's been one infection, let's go in and vaccinate the entire group and stop those outbreaks before they happen. And so I, I really think that we have, we are in a race against time about some of these variants and the quicker and harder we hit now, the less likely it will be that we'll have uh, these variants that are not as effective in vaccination. But I will tell you, uh, I'm working in vaccines and long-term care right now, and we're already seeing breakthrough outbreaks due to these variants, which would not have happened if everyone surrounding the long-term care community had been vaccinated, all the visitors, all the custodial staff, the couriers, all the people who might be bringing these infections in. And so let's, all if you are offered a vaccine take that vaccine as quickly as you can advocate to your government officials to make sure that those vaccines are getting to essential workers uh, and racialized communities and poor communities and uh, and make sure you keep adhering as hard as it is to social distancing and masking until we can make sure that these variants are not in our province it's very interesting to hear you talk about long-term care homes still having outbreaks because we would think, no, 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 no. No, that must be old news because we have long-term care individuals, whether they be workers or whether they be people living in long-term care, they've been vaccinated, no problem. You know, a lot of people will get that little sticker that says I've been vaccinated and think, ta-da, I'm ready to do whatever I wanna do. Dr. Bowden, can you help us to understand what really is at play here, that it's not a shot in the arm and ta-da? Mm -hmm. 
Well, because this relies on your immune response, and believe it or not, immune responses are pretty slow. So after your first, first shot, you're not really protected till 10 to 14 days later. So you need to lock it down for those that two weeks and just treat yourself as if you could be infected. Now, the good news is even after you've had that first shot, should you get infected, you are less likely to end up in the hospital and you are less likely to die. Great news. But you could still carry that infection in that 10 to 14 days and you really need to make sure that uh, you are not in contact with anyone. Treat yourself as unvaccinated for two weeks. And if you are someone who is on an immunosuppressant, who are, is, has some sort of chronic condition that requires you to be on drugs, make sure you have a conversation with your doctor about uh, the vaccination, because sometimes these don't work quite as well. And even though um, the vaccine will probably protect you from death and, and hospitalization, which is great, you still are gonna want to uh, keep those, that mask on and be cautious until you've had your two doses and until scientists like myself are absolutely sure that you're going to be 100% protected after that second dose. So take care of yourself, take care of your family and friends and loved ones by adhering to all the public health measures that we have to do until most of us are vaccinated. And I want you to sort of mentally prepare yourselves for the idea that we're going to probably need some booster shots when it comes to these new variants. The vaccines that we currently have in Canada work pretty well against some of the variants, but some of the newer ones are a little bit concerning. And so mentally get yourself ready for fall 2021 and thinking about, you know, uh, an update or a booster shot for some of these variants to help keep that protection high. What if we haven't vaccinated the entire population by then? How much of a concern is that? Well, I think one of the things that's been really problematic is the fact that these new variants spread more in younger people. So if you remember about a year ago, we were like, hey, don't worry, the kids are fine. And sure, they don't get sick. Yeah, but it's the bringing the home to the family that's the problem, right? This is the, um, you know, kids very, very, very rarely get sick enough to end up in the hospital and very, very rarely die. But, you know, many of us rely on relatives or adults for caregiving and babysitting and, and you know, uh, bringing the home to their parents. And we know that parents 30, 40, 50 years old are more likely to end up in the hospital now than they were in the first two waves. So definitely getting those teachers vaccinated um, to keep them safe, making sure that our kids are only going to school uh, in areas where the, the community rates are low. And the good news from Pfizer was that the vaccines are safe and effective, safe in, in 12 to 15 year olds. Um, and current trials are going younger than that. So pretty soon we're gonna have our kids vaccinated, but whether we can get that done by September is a little bit unclear. So we're always gonna have these little pockets of infection. And you know, the, the take home message with infectious disease is none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And so this is why we have to get everybody uh, vaccinated. And even then, because of these variants, we're gonna have little pockets of outbreaks and we're gonna have to think about booster shots and, and new strategies to deal with them. We are talking with Dr. Don Bowdish, professor and university scholar, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with McMaster University. So that line, we're not all protected until everybody is protected. What about a world where we have enough vaccine hesitancy that people have just said, no, not doing this? What does that world look like if we have a significant, and I don't know how big it would have to be, but a significant portion of the population that just says no? The good news is that the proportion of people who it's a dead no, they'll never entertain it is actually pretty small in Canada. 
And in fact, there's a significant proportion of people who are hesitant for reasons that we don't normally associate with vaccine hesitancy. So for example, I've had a lot of calls from participants in my study who are, who have, are on drugs for, for immunosuppressants, you know, or have some sort of medical condition where they need that. And they say, is the vaccine safe for me? And so these people are hesitant because nobody can tell them. There's not been any studies, so their doctors can't tell them, the public health officials can't tell them. Nobody can tell them if this these vaccines are gonna be safe or effective in them. So I hope that that's a whole class of people that once all the trials are done for them, they're all gonna jump on board and get vaccinated if it's safe and effective to do that. We also have a class of people who are a little bit nervous about the speed with which these vaccines have been produced. And to this, I say, these are actually they have the biggest clinical trials. They've had way more testing than normal vaccines um, just because we were able to get so many infections. So the speed has not been a compromise to safety. And then lastly, we have people who will change their mind when they can't do the things they, don't, they want to do because they're vaccinated. So for example, in Israel right now, which has had great vaccine successes, um, they have, you have to be able to show that you've been vaccinated to go to a, like a concert and things like that. And as is, has been the case in many countries, to travel to many countries, you often have to show proof of vaccination status for other, other infections and now certainly COVID-19. So there'll be a class of people who won't get vaccinated until it's inconvenient for them not to be vaccinated. And in that way, I think a lot of people will get vaccinated as well. So I actually think that as more and more people get vaccinated and people understand that it's not unsafe and you know, you know as people build trust in our monitoring programs in Canada and this whole clotting issue is sort of resolved, I think we're actually gonna see uptake to the point where it's safe. But, uh, but you know, we just have to speak openly and candidly and, and be clear to people about what we know and what we don't know. But I can say that I would take uh, any vaccine that I was offered right now because I am, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're all safe. One last question, Dr. Badish, and that is for anyone who maybe has had COVID-19 and didn't have massive effects, had a very mild case, do we know whether or not if you were to contract it again, it would treat it the same way in your body? It would, it would, it would be there in the same way? You'd have another mild case? Or is it possible to have two very different experiences should you contract it twice? Yes, we've definitely had reports where very different experiences. So we've had people who were so mild or asymptomatic the first time and ended up in the hospital the second time. And then we've had the reverse, people who had a very serious case the first time and a very mild case the second time. And I will say from my own experience, we've looked at immune responses of a few people who've had mild or asymptomatic cases. And I'm amazed at how wimpy those immune responses have been in those people. And so again, we need the data to back it up and support us here. But the, the recommendation is that those people should get vaccinated uh, to sort of um, fill up the holes in their immune repertoire. They're, they're, um, there isn't a lot of data here, and we certainly know that people who get, uh, who have had COVID and then get their first shot of the vaccine, they have a lot of that feverish feeling and they have a lot of those uh, headaches and sore arm and things like that. Um, meaning that their immune system has recognized this and is really jumping into action the second time around. So I'm, I, I, my recommendation would be that even if people who have had COVID, uh, should probably get vaccinated to fill those gaps that allowed you to get COVID in the first place. I mean, if your immune system was perfectly educated, you would never have got sick in the first place. So 
Um, and as well, we know that, uh, you know, sometimes what sends us to the hospital is our immune response. So people who have inappropriate immune responses have all sorts of complications that can lead to a serious infection. So vaccination is a way to give you a safe immune response and a strong immune response. Dr. Bowders, thank you for the work that you do in trying to tackle something as brand new as this. And thanks for sharing some time with us today. Keep safe. You too. That is Dr. Don Bowdish, professor and university scholar, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University. Instead of big names in golf, we're going to talk about big names in music. And this gives us an opportunity to talk about everything that has nothing to do with COVID and has very happy stories all around. Please welcome from the beautiful town of Stratford, Ontario, Stratford's own Callie McCullough. Callie, how are things? Things are really good. How are you today? Hey, I cannot complain whatsoever because the sun is shining and even though we're under emergency orders, we get an opportunity to talk with you and talk about some very happy stuff like the Canadian or the Country Music Association of Ontario Awards and you being nominated. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate that. It's been a, it's been a crazy year for all of us. So to kind of have this come in as a cherry uh, last week was like, wow, that's unexpected and very nice. <laughs> so we're really excited. You know that the nominations are coming out, though. Does part of you at least say, hey, listen carefully, maybe, just maybe, or do you try and ignore that they're out and then wait for your phone to blow up? Well, I think, you know, the nomination process with any awards is a little bit longer than, than any, you know, anybody outwardly sees. So we knew that we were in the running, um, but it is always a pleasant surprise Um and it's, um, I think it's really exciting this time around. Um, I've been, you know, a full-time musician for many years and making records. I started when I was very young. I was in traditional country and bluegrass and folk music. I was in a band with my mom. And we'd kind of done this whole award nomination dance as well. But this is my first solo album. And so the fact that it's getting some nominations is is crazy. And I think especially that, like I'm into really traditional country and, and folk music and bluegrass music and Western swing music. Um, so it's pretty outside of what is happening at mainstream country radio right now, but I do it because I love it. Um, and I've been living in Nashville for about seven years now. So I'm standing here and it's about 27 degrees Celsius outside, which I did hear that you guys have been having some nice weather. Um, but, you know, we had a really cool plan for this record and we took half of Allison Krause's band Union Station which is a Grammy winning bluegrass band and half of this Grammy winning western swing band called the Time Jumpers into the studio and made this really traditional record so I certainly never expected that it nominated in anything to do with mainstream country so we're really excited about it. Let's talk a little bit about bluegrass because it's something that has a lot of fans, but like you say, it's not necessarily where the genre of country music that maybe is front and center all the time is. When you look back on your life and and being, say, four, five, six years old and, and getting into music and, and starting to, to know, hey, that that's a thing, that's 
that's music and recognize it. Was that what was playing? Was that what your parents were doing? Well, I have a pretty interesting musical background. My mom was actually, uh, for the CCMAs, the Canadian Country Music Awards, was the rising star back in the 1980s. And my parents were both full-time musicians. My dad's from just like Eight Mile Road in Arva, like outside of London, Ontario. My mom's from Collingwood. And I basically grew up backstage and like in the tour van. Um, so I had an interesting background. My dad was really a rock and blues guy and like really tried his hardest to get me to love classic rock. Um, and my mom was really very much traditional country. My dad was also a folk guy. Got me really into like Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell. Um, and I don't know. I just kind of went on my own little weird little rabbit hole. You know, I started to like go through their record collections and just pick out some obscure they were like, ah, nobody listens to that. And I started to fall in love with it. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole and I started, you know, traveling down to the United States and, and starting to dig into like the roots and the Americana and the bluegrass world and, you know, going to like bluegrass shows and just different stuff and, and just kind of pulling all of those roots into what I do. So I think it's just like, you know, your ear turns to what you love if, if you want to go dig around for it, you know? So I don't, I don't know. I'm an odd duck. Like, I didn't learn who Michael Jackson was until I was 22. Like, I was living in this cave of very specific music. <laughs> now, once you did learn who Michael Jackson was, has anything inspired you as, as you're writing songs? Or you think, hey, that's a little bit like Billie Jean. I think I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yes. No, and, and certainly, like, I've, I've opened my ears over the years to, to all styles of music, which I love, but I definitely, I have the things that hit close to home for sure. But, yes, I love to listen to all types of music now. <laughs> Stratford's own Callie McCullough joining us as we talk about her debut solo album, After Midnight. It is a six-song record, and as Callie says, it's got a lot of different stuff that has been brought together. When you look at, at songwriting or performing, is there one that you look forward to more than the other, or are you just someone that, hey, drop me into this big barrel of what the music industry is about, and I'm happy? I mean... I, <laughs> that's such an interesting statement, Mike. Oh, the music industry, if I'm being honest, I could live without, but the music itself I love. So, I mean, definitely love to hold up with guitar and write songs. Um, it's one of those things where it's kind of its own master. So it decides, you know, when you're going to have a good time writing and when you're going to have to force it. Um, but always love getting out on stage. I've been playing shows since I was about 14 years old so always love to be out and talking to people and and you know getting to travel I think is such a big part of it for me too um, I'm a horrible driver but I've driven pretty much everywhere uh, <laughs> to the dismay of the world and uh, yeah I love it all I love traveling love playing for people and of course you know this past year that's been a, a different turn and so as you know, we're getting back to things here a little bit faster in Tennessee. And so I've actually played three shows in the last two weeks. And I was like, oh, people, this is so wonderful. But now, certainly the year gave us a lot of writing time, which was all great. When you say playing in front of people, you mean, I mean, you're in Nashville right now. You might be in a very different place than we are. So 
are you talking about being able to play in front of actual other humans? Real, breathing humans in in person without a digital device between you. Yes. Boy, that's that gives us a ton of hope right there. What was that like? It was it was great. I mean, it was strange almost because I went from, you know, playing full time as a musician for, you know, I don't know, eight years to, you know, 2019 was a crazy season for me. I was playing, you know, in and around Nashville and out on the road, like eight shows a week for the whole summer. And then it was like nothing. So I felt for a minute, like I was shaking off like a year of dust bunnies, right? I was like, whoa, I remember how to do this, right? But uh, you get a few songs in and it's just right there. So it was good. We're talking with Callie McCullough, and we're talking about After Midnight, her first solo album. And you've got a lot of songs on here. One of the words that gets used a lot when people are describing your songwriting is honest. Is that something you hear and and like, or is that something that, that you hear and think, well, I'd like to hear these words? How do you feel when people say you're a very honest songwriter? Uh, well, I guess I'm just a very honest person. I don't really have much of a filter. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's just true, right? Um, a lot of these songs, well, actually not a lot of, all of these songs were songs that I had written. And I was writing full-time when I first got to town. You know, you do the thing where you write two times a day, five days a week. You're writing ten songs a week with all kinds of different people and really getting to explore your creativity as a writer and try and find your path, but sometimes you could kind of get lost in it all a little bit. Um, but these songs that I decided to put on the record were the songs that actually had, you know, pieces of me in them and the most of my story. So, um, so it's great to actually be able to take a piece of yourself and turn it into music and send it out into the world. So I know I think that that's a great word. How do those sessions go when you talk about writing with different people Take us to a, a typical day like that. What happens? Well, <clears throat> and to a certain extent, I've almost tried to remove myself from it slightly. I think when you're new in town, you want to learn. I've been writing songs since I was 14 years old. And before that, I was just like writing random scribbles on napkins that, you know, never turned into anything or maybe just like some weird poems. Who knows? Uh but when you're new in town, you know, you really want to dive in and learn the Nashville way to write songs, which is you do writing sessions with other people. So you literally book a time. You say, okay, we're going to write from 10 to 1, and then you'll go have lunch, and then you'll go write with somebody else from 2 to 5, and then everybody goes down to the bar for cocktails, and and, the re- and that's your day. Um And so you're trying to write with as many people as possible and you're trying to learn from them and and you're also just bouncing ideas around. And that's a really exciting and cool process. So I think, you know, when you get into that level of writing, you're basically carrying notes around with you all the time, kind of in your phone. Any idea that pops into your brain, you're writing a little note being like, oh, you know, that road sign made me think of something or, 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 you know, this word or this line. And you're making notes all of the time so that you're kind of armed with those things as you walk in the door. What, what am I going to pull out today? And everybody's going to bounce ideas and we're going to pick one and go, yeah, we're all on board with that today. Let's do that. Um, but then, you know, 
so grateful to submerge myself that heavily in it. But I started to pull out a little bit more and try to hone in on my own creativity. And I find that a lot of the gems of the ideas, there are the songs that you work for, and then there are the songs that sort of fall from the sky. And for me, it tends to be like, it's always three in the morning. I'm always trying to sleep. Something wakes me up. I get an idea. And I know that if I don't get up and try and catch it, it's going to be gone when I wake up in the morning. So you crawl out of bed and you grab your guitar and you sit down and you try and catch as much of it as you can. And a lot of times the whole thing will fall out right then. And sometimes you'll bring it into a session the next week or two and it'll, you know, kind of come full circle. So it's sort of all over the place. I get ideas all the time and then I go through spells where I have no ideas for a long time. Stratford's own Callie McCullough joining us on London Live, nominee for Canadian or Country Music Association of Ontario Awards. Now, the album that you've got out after midnight, there are a lot of ballads. You've got you've got a beautiful voice, and anyone who has not heard Callie sing, beautiful. You've got a song called Feathers that that kind of is a little bit different. Can you tell us where Feathers comes from and and what that's all about? Well, do you want to hear the press story on the song or what the actual story on the song is? We the like actual, actual stories on this show. It's like the actual story. I don't have a filter. Um, I pretty much co-wrote this entire album with two fellow Canadians, also both living in Nashville, one being Scotty Kipper, who's from Milverton, Ontario, and the other one is my good buddy Ryan Thorstad, who is from Saskatchewan. And we were going into the studio to make the record like within a month, I had it all planned. I knew the songs I wanted. And, and we were sitting and I'm going over the record and I go, there is not one up-tempo song on this record. And I stand behind that, but I feel like there's just something missing. So I called Ryan. I was like, you got to come over this week. We got to write something up-tempo. I don't care what it is, but something. And he comes over and it was one of those no ideas days. I was like, Ryan? I don't have an idea. Do you have an idea? He was like, no, I don't have an idea. And in my living room, there's actually a photo. The whole wall is a bunch of guitars, and there's a photo of these feathers. It's just a picture of different feathers. And he was like, feathers, let's write a song called Feathers. And and then sort of by so doing, you know, we pulled some stories into that song. And a lot of people are like, have you been in an abusive relationship? Has something bad happened to you? I was like, no, we just wrote a song called Feathers. Um, but, uh, but yes, a lot of people have kind of found their own versions of stories within that song, which I think is really cool. Um, but I think for both of us are kind of like, I took an English major, Ryan did too. We're a little bit nerdy and we're like, this is sort of like some Edgar Allan Poe kind of vibes. We're not really sure what happened here, but it came out somewhere. That's amazing. Well, thank you for the real story of that. That's, that's excellent. So Tell us now, I mean, we're still in a pandemic, but being in Nashville, you can perform a little bit. Tell us what the next little while is going to be like for you. Sure. Well, and I, I had spent um, the better part of last year actually in Canada, which I felt really fortunate to do because I have been living, you know, hundreds of miles away from my family for the past seven years. So it was my first Canadian summer in a long time was last summer, and I got a tan by the lake, and that was amazing because the weather in Ontario is gorgeous at that time and then I actually spent the winter up at the family farm as well and we were out snowshoeing and all kinds of things so that part was really great um but I definitely decided that it was kind of time to get back in the saddle and 
and try and get things going again. So I've only been back for two and a half weeks. Um, so actually I have my first writing session back tomorrow. Uh, I've played three shows and I've got some meetings. I've got some new things in the works. Um, but I'm definitely looking towards putting out new music, hopefully next year. Uh, so just kind of creating, and we're hoping that we can all be back on the road maybe by fall. So probably lots of shows around Nashville for the summer and hoping to get out on the road, maybe out to Texas and Virginia. And when the time is right, coming back up to Canada to doing the shows we had planned on. So just kind of back in the saddle, and it feels really good. Good. Well, keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing. And good luck Sunday, May 30th. Ancaster Fairgrounds will be the CMA Ontario Award Show. And, Callie, we, we've loved spending this time with you. Continued success, and uh, thanks for putting this area on the map like you do. Thank you so much, Mike. I certainly appreciate it. I also really enjoyed your golf uh, banter because I've recently become a golfer, and I was like, oh, yes, I know what he's talking about. never <laughs> <laughs> Minus one, plus one. I think we'll all only know, dream of those mean. scores, but uh, yeah, they're uh, they're actually. I can be plus one after one hole. I can also be plus seventy after about eighteen. <laughs> My Callie, thanks again. Keep no, safe. Let's go ahead. <laughs> all right, Callie, keep safe. Back in a world where you heard bad news, negative news, whatever it is, there could be a question after you heard it. So, hey, they're going to dig up the road in front of your house. Will it raise the price of beer? No. I don't care. Dig away. Go ahead. Hey, they are going to ban the ability to buy margarine. Not a true story, by the way. You can still buy margarine. Will it raise the price of beer? No. Well, then fine. Raise the price of margarine. Go to it. Again, disclaimer, margarine prices are still the same. And you can still get them because grocery stores are essential services. But when we look at raising the price of beer, it can kind of come all on its own. And we have had a beer tax increase And now it looks like we're having another beer tax increase. So there's only one place that we can go to find out what is actually raising the price of beer. It has nothing to do with margarine or road construction in front of your home, but it seems to have something to do with something. So the president of Beer Canada joins us now to talk about this, Luke Chapman. Luke, thank you for being here. Hello, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. Something is raising the price of beer so we've seen two increases during the pandemic that is correct and it's actually the federal government that's playing a role in raising the price of beer for canadians and you know despite calls from literally hundreds of businesses across canada the government did uh, move forward with uh, another beer tax increase last thursday and as you just mentioned that marks the second during covid19 and the fifth in the last four years. So if you're you know, going out to grab a few beers for this upcoming weekend, you might notice that prices have gone up uh, a little bit. Uh, yeah, so not, not at all helpful, uh, obviously, for Canadians that enjoy having a beer from time to time, but also not helpful uh, for those businesses that depend on beer sales, uh, like restaurants and bars that are you know, going through a, a very challenging time right now. 
That's just it. We always think, well, restaurants and bars, they just have beer. That's They just have it. There it is. It's it's behind the bar. It's in the fridge. You just go and get it. We rarely have to think that, yeah, no, they don't They don't really buy that necessarily in bulk or, or at cheaper prices. They tend to pay some similar prices to what we do, don't they? Yeah, that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, restaurants and bars are some of Brewer's biggest customers you know in a typical year recognizing that you know this year and last year has been anything but typical but you know in a typical year you know these businesses account for about 30 percent of all canadian beer sales so uh, yeah big customer and you know as they emerge from covid19 and try to get on a, a path to recovery obviously you know governments that decision or you know decisions that governments are making that are going to uh, raise the, the cost of their inputs are not going to be helpful uh, in that that recovery, so that's uh, you know been our focus at Beer Canada is building this you know coalition really of organizations that depend on beer sales, you know, and make a call both to the federal and provincial governments to you know let's just put a temporary pause on on these increases. We're talking right now about the price of beer and the fact that there has been a second tax increase by the federal government. Luke Chapman joining us, president of Beer Canada. Luke, we, and it seems, you know, London isn't alone in this, we're home to beer manufacturing at any number of levels. You can look at a long-time and large player in Labatt, but you can look at, say, Powerhouse Brewery and others that are not as big as Labatt but are still producing beer. So... Who does this hit in a in a big way? Would it be the mid-sized producers, or would it even be everybody who's a producer? Yeah, I mean, it hits brewers in different ways. The way the federal beer tax is structured, smaller brewers do pay a lower rate. Um, but, you know, obviously, as you get bit bigger, your rates go up. And, you know, the, the increase that took place uh, last week affects everyone, and I think, you know, Mike, it's important to highlight, you know, where we're starting from here in Canada. I don't think it's any surprise, but uh, beer is a very heavily taxed product here in Canada at the outset. You know, 50% of the retail price of beer is a form of federal or provincial tax. So, you know, when you layer on, you know, even these small increases on top of that, it's, uh, you know, not at all helpful. And it's going to amplify those other taxes that are already applied to beer throughout the, you know, the, the manufacturing process all the way to the, the end consumer. And, of course, when it comes to the end of consumer or the end consumer, that, that does raise the price of beer. Look, when we look at where beer is able to be sold today, the fact that it's not just the beer store anymore, what do you make of the landscape when it comes to the sale of beer? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question, a very timely question, because, you know, COVID-19 has brought about some changes to how beer is distributed and sold pretty much in every province across Canada. And I think if you spoke to any brewer, they said, you know, more opportunities to access their customers would be a good thing. So it's been, you know, a positive for for brewers, but also obviously for for restaurants and bars in some provinces that are now uh, able to direct deliver to consumers, which I know a lot of consumers uh, are taking advantage of. Absolutely. When we go looking at even the the latest news, how closely were you paying attention to the news that we've seen the the beer store apparently not making money, operating at a a loss for the last little smidge of time? What do you make of that? 
Uh, I think there's a number of, of reasons why we're, we're seeing those results. But, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, Mike, uh, the, the marketplace for beer in Ontario is evolving and it's not something that's unique to Ontario. It's taking place in, uh, in other provinces as well. And also, you know, across, across the globe and, uh, you know, e-commerce is becoming a, a big retail channel as well. So, uh, I think we'll just see, you know, these, these retail models continue to adapt to what, uh, you know, what consumers are, are looking for. We're talking right now with Luke Chapman, president of Beer Canada. And Luke, one of the things in giving us all of this information, you have also started up something that has been gaining some real momentum, and that is Freeze It For Them. What is that campaign and what's it about? Yeah, well, it's a campaign that we've built at Beer Canada. There's currently over 25 supportive organizations that have joined onto it. And really, we're just carrying a very simple message to both the, the federal and provincial governments. And that message is to put a freeze on beer taxes to protect the jobs that the beer industry supports and also to help businesses that businesses that depend on beer sales recover from COVID-19. And, uh, you know, one of the, the purposes of this campaign is to make more Canadian consumers aware of just how important the the beer industry is to Canada's economy. I don't know if many people know this, but 85% of the beer uh, sold in Canada is made here by Canadian workers in a Canadian brewery. Uh, and the industry supports, you know, 149,000 Canadian jobs. So really it's, it's, you know, about raising awareness of the impact of the industry, but also, you know, the high taxation rate that, uh, that brewers and, and beer uh, have to remit to the government's. Luke, help us to make the connection between the tax increase and jobs. Where do you feel the concern lies? Well, it's just, for me personally, this is a personal level. It's a cost of living issue, right? You know, like you go out to a a restaurant and bar, you know, using London, Ontario as an example, and you're starting to notice that, you know, a pint of beer, you know, getting up to the 10 or $11 mark, um, which is, uh, you know, expensive for, you know, a middle-class family to afford on on a regular basis. So, uh, I think the concern there from a job perspective is that as these prices continue to rise due to the high tax rate, you're going to start seeing more people decide to just, you know, stay home as opposed to going out to a, a bar or restaurant patio in the summer um, because it has become so cost prohibitive. So um, I, we're, we're hopeful that the governments will, will recognize kind of that connection and make that decision to, uh, you know, put a pause on these tax increases to, to help with this uh, economic recovery. Well, we really appreciate the time and the information on this. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for for being a part of Beer Canada, because I I absolutely love the name. Before we go, can you outline what Beer Canada was designed to do? (laughs) Well, it was designed to to act on behalf of the Canadian beer industry. So we have about 45 member companies that are part of the organization. Uh, We have some big brewers and some some small brewers as well. And we just want to, you know, make sure that everyone's aware of all the great things uh, related to the beer industry and also, you know, make sure that when government makes decisions regarding beer that they understand the perspective of the industry as well. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun on most days. <laughs> Love it. Well, hey, thanks for what you do and thanks for the time today. Keep safe. Okay, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Take care. That's Luke Chapman, President of Beer Canada and why you are seeing increases that one goes back further in the pandemic, one goes back to last week, April the 1st, and why those increases are coming into play and the concerns that Beer Canada has about them. 
You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.